Welcome back to another episode of the Abide in the Word podcast. We are your hosts, Lauren Dick, and I'm here once again with Pastor Mike Hovland. Hello. So our topic for this episode, we will be continuing on in on the subject of soteriology. Today we will be addressing God's sovereignty and the decree of God. And it'll be a bit of a, a response, a uh, track has gone out to all the, uh, all the people in the community, and the title of the track is Calvinism's Misrepresentation of God. And it was put out by a local pastor in our community here who obviously does not agree with, with these views of uh, the, what we would call the doctrines of grace. And seeing as that has gone out into our community and considering the fact that, that we are known as the Calvinist church, though I think we should be clear in our views of soteriology definitely are Calvinistic. We haven't been as busy placing that label on ourselves as many others have liked to do that. And I think a large part of that is, is because for many people, the term Calvinism, it, it strikes a, a pretty negative emotion, a pretty negative uh, taste in their mouth, if you can want to put it that way. And so as soon as that label kind of gets placed on something, really it's used in a derogatory sense very often. And something like this tract that has gone out, some of the stuff, content in this tract may also lend to that. And so we would like to address some of those things for the people of our church, for anybody else in the community. And ultimately, we've discussed that in the past that, you know, we, we did a to- the topic of the perseverance of the saints. We covered that in a previous episodes two episodes, I believe that one ended up being kind of as a follow-up from the gospel, you know, with salvation once we are, are saved, then can we lose that salvation? And we, we ended up going through that part of what we would call the tulip, the P, the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. And so having wanted to cover some of these other of the five points of Calvinism and kind of teach through them and, and why we would believe what we believe and also the acronym known as TULIP, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and then ultimately P for perseverance of the saints. We just thought it would be fitting to, to maybe start with that, seeing as this tract had gone out and we will address some of the things in there and and again, in a, try to do it in a non-combative way, but just more informative. We do feel that some of the stuff in here is not a proper representation or teaching of what the doctrines of grace truly would be. And, and ultimately, and, and you know, uh, Pastor Mike, I just think back several years ago, I was confronted by a member of our community and, and uh, I was asked very bluntly, is it true that you believe in the five points? I just responded. I'm not sure. What are the five points? And this person responded back, well, well, I don't know, but I was told you believe them. <laughs> to which my response simply was, well, then I guess I can't answer that. Without knowing what the accusation was, there was anger almost presented in that challenge. Is this what you believe? Because all they knew was it was supposedly bad. Yeah, that's what, a, that's what a lot of people just think about Calvinism. All they know is it's bad or John Calvin was bad, and therefore, like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. Well, you know, fair enough, if, but like, is it, actually, is it actually bad, or is it what Scripture teaches? Well, and I think one of the, the challenges, especially to the professing Christian out there, is if you're going to judge someone based on a label, be sure that you understand that, and, and talk to the person to find out. And ultimately, 
do take some time to study through these things and find out what the person actually believes because it is so easy to put a label on someone and and have that be a negative title for that person and and to destroy that person's reputation to use that in order to to bring that person down and really can do damage to the body of Christ and if we're professing Christians and if your concern is truth then make sure you're being truthful about the person that you're you're talking about or challenging in these in these ways and if you're going to challenge someone that in a combative manner you know is it true that you believe the five points make sure you understand what those five points are and that you can articulate your your opposition to them maybe as well yeah right. so what what we want to do is dig into these five points of calvinism if we want to call it that and and let me just even back up and just say i i have i have never uh, gone out of my way to use the the label calvinism i don't think of myself as a calvinist i think of myself as a christian I believe the doctrines that are called Calvinism, but what what we really want to do is we want to explain what we believe from Scripture, and then judge it. You know, then then see is this really what Scripture teaches? And and actually, if we can kind of continue on here, one of the one of the things I really like at the beginning of this tract is here's a question. This is a quote here. Here's a question for every Christian: Is truth the benchmark? of my life? Do I desire truth above all else? And I think that's a really good question that we should think about. Again, later on in the tract, it says, do I want the truth of the matter? Am I willing to objectively research this teaching? And, and that's, that's what we kind of want to present. We want to present the truth of, of what we believe about how salvation works and God's mm-hmm. sovereignty in the world. And, uh, and then we would say, you know, you know, I, I know that like one of the reasons we're addressing these things is there's some people that are, I don't know if I would say in our church or, or loosely connected with our church or who maybe listen to our, our sermons online who maybe have some questions about these things. I know of a few people who are relatives of people that go to our church who have who've kind of wanted me to address these things. And so we thought this would be a great forum to do that. And um, these are some, like you said, Lauren, these are some of the things we already wanted to talk about. So if you're listening, that's a great question for you. Do you want to, do you want to follow what scripture says? Then let's look at what scripture says and then make a decision. And then with that, I was going to, I was thinking about maybe kind of going into kind of my own journey on this. Like Mm -hmm. when I became a Christian. Well, that's a great, great question there for yourself. And, and for myself, have we always believed and adhered to these doctrines as well? And you said earlier, you know, you almost hesitate using the term Calvinism. And, and we understand what we mean with that. But because there's so many different maybe ideas of what Calvinism is, I, I'm personally much prefer the, the title, the doctrine of grace, the doctrines of grace, right? Which, sure, they're the same thing. But the doctrines of grace more specifically tied to soteriology, the, the, the doctrine of salvation, where Calvinism as a whole also carries with itself a lot of other positions and stuff that that John Calvin may have had or have been attributed to him in, in those areas but with the doctrines of grace pastor mike is that are those doctrines that you have always believed in or is there a process or a journey that you took that got you to this point yeah that's you know that's a great question i like i didn't even grow up in a christian home so i obviously didn't grow up calvinist and even after I got saved for a lot of years, 
I had never even heard of Arminianism and Calvinism, uh, which are really the, the only two things that there are. You know, as far as understanding soteriology, as far as orthodox soteriology, you're either, you're either Arminian or Calvinism, or you're like in this hazy ground in the middle where you don't actually know what you think about stuff. That like, that, you know, maybe that's a bit harsh, but that is, that, I think that's really where it is. So what's your view when someone says, I'm neither a Calvinist nor an Arminian, I'm a Biblicist? Well, yeah, you're, I'd say you're, you're standing on solid ground on, in the middle of thin air. <laughs> yeah. Because there's, there's really, there's, there really is no other way to explain salvation except for by those two methods. Right. And, and hey, let's just put this out there then. So you're either, if, if you want to talk about being a man follower, which sometimes comes along here, well, you're either following Jacob Arminius or you're going to follow John Calvin. And you, there's, there is no middle ground if you really rightly understand it. Yeah. So, and, and in fact, anyone who actually stands on the middle ground is, is actually probably Arminian. That, you know, they, they right. think that they, they're standing firmly in the middle there, but, but really in practice, they're Arminian. And really, and, and you just make an interesting <clears throat> statement regarding being a man follower and ultimately God has given us and scripture tells us, you know, we have preachers and teachers. So the idea of listening to other men teach the word, preaching the word and learning from that is not foreign to scripture. In fact, that is one of the means by which God has chosen to put his word out and to get the teaching out. But the idea of being a man follower, where we strictly adhere to a certain view or perspective because so-and-so taught it or said it, I think that's something maybe that we should address as well. Yeah. And you know what we should do too, maybe as I'm thinking about this, maybe we should talk and, and spend a time where we talk about the history of, of how these doctrines even were articulated. It's not even John Calvin who, who articulated these doctrines. It was really a response to the followers of Jacob Arminius and their teaching. And then, but anyways, I don't want to talk about that today. I'm not, I'm not really prepared to go into that, but that might be helpful at some point too. Maybe toward when we're kind of wrapped up in this series and, and talking these different things, we can, we can do a kind of a history lesson on that and take a look at that and go from there. Okay. But, so you asked me, I think if we're going to go there, it, uh, you asked me, how did I come across these things and I didn't grow up in a Christian home and it wasn't until like maybe 10 or 15 years after I was a Christian uh, I had never heard of Calvinism or Arminianism I was listening to some preaching by Paul Washer and he mentioned and 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 if you've listened to Paul Washer a little bit he's mentioned you'll know that he's mentioned reformed theology I didn't know what reformed theology was so I started kind of looking that up what is this uh, you know I wonder if I even really knew what theology was what is this thing yeah, what is going on with this reformed stuff? So, but I knew that Paul Washer preached the gospel, so I, I was curious. And, and so at some point, I just started digging into these doctrines, really doing what this question is, you know, I, I desired the truth. I wanted to know, what does scripture say about these things? And so I just, um, in my own mind, I just honestly pursued kind of both sides. I studied Arminianism, I studied Calvinism. I listened to debates. I listened to a debate particularly that I remember being helpful was one by James White and Dave Hunt. I thought that was very helpful. Uh, I listened to a, a little bit more stuff from James White, and I, I don't even know that I remember exactly. Uh, then I read a book called uh, For Calvinism and the, the counter book Against Calvinism. And, and it was actually in reading Against Calvinism 
where I was persuaded that Calvinism was correct. And the reasoning for that is because as, as, as we went to the scriptures, uh, and I remember James White saying this in the, in the debate, as we went to the scriptures from both sides, the, Calvinist, the scriptures the Calvinists were using were scriptures that described salvation and the way that salvation works. And they were just, they were just kind of opening up those scriptures. Whereas the scriptures that the Arminians were going to were not speaking about salvation and how salvation works. They were kind of, they were other scriptures. And we'll, we'll get to that at some point in this series. Um, and then when the Calvinist guys would answer and explain the, the other side scriptures, it's, it seemed to fit the context. And it, and it seemed to, they had an answer to those things. When the Arminians would, would try to refute what the Calvinists were showing, they did not have an answer to those scriptures. And, then, and, and, and what they had more was emotional arguments um, based on the idea of, of man's free will. And I just, I just came to the place where I was like, this is scriptural. This is what God's word says. And then, and then kind of having arrived there, I just, I saw it everywhere in scripture. And it's only been confirmed over and over again uh, over the years. So when you're saying, you know, how the different sides would use scripture, we often talk about exegesis versus eisegesis. When we exegete something to, to pull the, the, the proper meaning out of the Word of God, out of Scripture, using uh, what we call the historical, grammatical, literal, literal, historical, grammatical, just vice versa. Yeah. Exactly what you said. Yeah. <laughs> the um, where where we where we look at Scripture in, in its literal sense from a historical perspective, what how the original readers and, and writers would have intended it, and then also using the grammar, pulling out the meaning, exegeting the meaning out of the text, where we also consider. The opposite of that is eisegesis, where the the reader reads their own kind of intention into what the author wrote. Yeah, and I find that interesting, as you mentioned, that the, that the different sides, and that's in a sense how I came to some of the same conclusions was listening to these debates, listening to Dr. James White debating Dave Hunt, who Dave Hunt. Um, George Bryson, as well as Leighton Flowers, are all mentioned in the in this track that went out in our community. And you can go on YouTube and find their teaching on on these things. But you can also find their debates that they had with men like Dr. James White, where both sides make arguments, but also counter arguments towards each other. And the the debate that Dave Hunt had with Dr. James White. That one was especially clear, and, and honestly, the Romans 9 debate between James, Dr. James White and Leighton Flowers was a very good one as well, and the one where Dr. James White debates George Bryson on how salvation works, I believe that one is called. But in each one of those, I believe Dr. White portrays a consistent hermeneutic, and most importantly, like you say, he can show, he can use the text that the, that the other person uses and show why it doesn't contradict what he's teaching, where I felt the other side couldn't do that properly. And it was through that, it wasn't through reading a book by John Calvin, and then you just wake up, hey, I want to be a Calvinist. No, it's through the consistent application of, of good hermeneutics to the Word of God, exegeting the Scriptures consistently, that makes a person come up with this idea. And then, like you say, once you see God's sovereignty, you see it everywhere. From Genesis through Revelation, through in nature with man, with with 
creation, with animals, with, with angels, with, with everything. You see God's sovereignty mm-hmm. throughout the pages of Scripture. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so, two things I want to say. One, one is, when you, when you read this tract, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not, the purpose of the tract maybe isn't to do this, but I, you'll notice that there's very little Scripture in this tract. And so what we want to do is we want to fill this in with the scriptures that prove these things. And then I would just kind of echo what you said, Lauren. I have read some sections of um, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Great, great book. But that's, that's, that was much later, and I still haven't even read the whole thing. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of the works of Calvin that I just I haven't read. Maybe one day I'll get yeah. to it. But that's not the reason I'm a Calvinist either. It's not because of John Calvin. It's because yeah. of the Word of God. That's something that people often jump to very quickly. You know, you, you read John Calvin, obviously, because you adhere to these doctrines and therefore you're a man follower. And I think that's something that, that we need to be careful about. And especially if, if you're listening to this and, and from our community, if that's been an approach that you've had, you know, pause for a second maybe and even just consider what church do you go to? You know, I'm quite familiar with the churches in this community and the majority of them have the name Mennonite either in their church name or in their conference that their church belongs to. So before we get too hasty with attributing the title man follower to fellow believers, maybe we should consider what it it looks like to have a man's name in your own church then. Now, to to be fair, I have no problem with that because I understand what the intent is. It's, It's kind of, you know, like when we say Calvinist, it's, it, it portrays a system of thought, a, a, a theological tradition or something like that. Just like for a lot of people when they use the t- name Mennonite. But what, what my concern is, is how quickly people are to say you're a man follower because you agree with John Calvin, while they themselves are often elders in a church that literally has a man's name in their church. Yeah. Challenge would only be this, either recognize that you don't have to be a man follower just if you say you're Calvinistic or whatever. Or then say, we're the, we're the chief of man followers because we put a man's name in our church name. <laughs> you know, just, just some consistency, honesty, yeah. very important. A little fairness there, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, let's, let's just start into this then. Let, and, and what we want to do today is just, we want to start with God's sovereignty and, and talk about what theology calls uh, the decree of God. God's sovereignty and the decree. And actually, I think, just kind of starting this off, we did a, a Bible study on Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. I think Lauren's got a quote there from Jerry Bridges. Yeah. And uh, as we read this quote, I would say this book is a great book. It has, it, it's a great book all around, Trusting God. The original title was Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, which it kind of deals with just the hardships of life and stuff like that. And how can we trust God and why can we trust God? Because of his sovereignty, and there's several chapters, full chapters that deal with it in depth in this book. The sovereignty of God, um, God's sovereignty over people, God's rule over nations, God's power over nature, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, which, which we'll address in a later episode as well. It's a very important piece there, but just looking at it, we're looking at about 100 pages in this book that just deal with God's sovereignty and how it relates in all this, these spheres. So a great resource, Jerry Bridges, Trusting God. It's a, a great book, a very helpful book, um, but it also gives a very great uh, synopsis of God's sovereignty. 
So the quote that I wanted to read here is under the subtitle, God's Absolute Control, or the heading, God's Absolute Control. God is in control. He is sovereign. He does whatever pleases him and determines whether we can do what we have planned. This is the essence of God's sovereignty, his absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all his creatures. No creature, person, or empire can either thwart his will or act outside the bonds of his bounds of his will. And there's another quote on the next page. Confidence in the sovereignty of God in all that affects us is crucial to our trusting him. If there is a single, and I really like this part, uh, Pastor Mike, something to really consider here. If there is a single event in all of the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. His love may be infinite, but if his power is limited and his purpose can be thwarted, we cannot trust him. I remember reading that for the first time a number of years ago and often considered it afterwards, you know, how true that is. If we're going to take God's sovereignty away from any area of our lives, we cannot trust him in that. If, if he cannot control man, then there is no point in praying for him to intervene in, in someone's life. Mm-hmm. If someone is, if, there, if there's something terrible happening, there's no point in praying to God to stop someone from doing something or to protect someone else if he has no control there, and then we cannot trust him in that area. If God does not have control of our minds, we cannot trust him with our thoughts. We cannot entrust our thoughts to him, our thinking, our growth in that way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, R.C. Sproul used to say something along this line. He, he would say, that it, you know, if there's, a, if there's a single maverick molecule mm-hmm. in the universe, then it could potentially thwart all of God's plans. And, and, and yeah, and if, and if something can thwart his plans, how can you trust him in that? Because really then what's happening is we're just at the whims of evil people, you know, whatever they want to do they they can do. And, and it's really everything that's happening in our lives is outside of God's control. But that's not what scripture teaches. You know, in this, in this tract, going back to this, uh, it asks some questions, uh, kind of, you know, what I would think of as, as more emotional type of questions. Did, did God predetermine every suicide, every drunkard's accident that killed innocent people, every abortion, every sin-sick society? Uh, according to Calvinism, he did, it says. I would say, yes, he did. Now, you know, we're going to get into that, that God's not the author of sin, and we're going to try to understand how does that work with our responsibility. I don't want to talk about that yet today. We, we, but, Ahead, Just to sorry. quickly uh, jump in here, we did cover some of that in an episode that we did on God's will, on oh, His right. omnipotent will, and 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 we looked at the different uh, theological perspectives on God's will, and we did address some of that there. Now that said, as Pastor Mike mentioned, as you mentioned here, we we will dig into that a little bit more as well as this the series kind of goes on, but. For those listening at this point, if you haven't checked out that episode yet, that would be a great place to start as well to kind of get where we're coming from, what what our perspective and what our position is on that. Yeah. So yeah, we've heard what Jerry Bridges said. Um, I've kind of just affirmed that I believe God is in control of everything, that there is not a maverick molecule, that there is no way to thwart his will. 
um, that everything that does happen in this world is under his absolute sovereign control so that nothing happens except what God will, and I would even say actively wills, not even just what God allows, but what he actively wills, even the evil things that happen like, you know, suicide, drunkards, accidents, abortions, every, every sin and, and, and evil society that, that hap- you know, everything that happens in the world. So I'd have a question for you, Pastor Mike. These things, the things that you just mentioned, they are acts of evil, they're wickedness, they cause a lot of grief, they cause a lot of hurt. You mentioned earlier that this seems to be an emotional appeal, and I would agree with that, uh, hence the lack of the use of any scripture beyond the introductory portion of this tract. But in regards to that, if we can prove from scripture that God ordains and is actively in control and acts according to his will in what maybe could be considered the greatest act of evil or sin ever uh, conducted or carried out by man, it would then naturally follow up from that then all other things that we would consider evil or sin or, or bad could then also come under his omnipotent predetermination correct yeah i think i think that if i think i see what you're getting at there so if god if god's in control of a a really evil act then doesn't that show that he would be in control of lesser forms of evil in the world right i I think that's a, a a good way to go and so then the question the next question i would ask is what would we consider as being the the most evil act ever carried out by the hands of man yeah, and that's that's easy in a sense because the the most evil thing that's ever happened in this world is when the innocent, sinless, perfect son of God came to this earth, took on a human nature, and was murdered by wicked people mm-hmm. for no fault of his own. And so the following up on that then would be is if if an act like that where God himself, God the son was murdered by his own creation, God the Son, Jesus Christ, being perfectly holy, being perfectly God, was murdered by his own creation. My position then would be that all lesser acts of evil, it could be well understood that they then too could be as part of God's predetermined plan for our ultimate good and to accomplish his ultimate will. Yeah, and 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 I, you know, as much as we see this as the 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 worst evil ever committed, it's also the greatest good that was ever achieved, exactly. right? And so, in the greatest act of evil, we see the accomplishment God working through that evil to accomplish the greatest good. And, and that would then also beg the question: Did God just react to what He knew man would do to Jesus, His Son? Was that just a reaction from God, or was that God's plan? And, and I think for that, we can jump into the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Delivered up, this Jesus delivered up according to the 
definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So here we see in, in this, these two verses, verses 22 and 23 of Acts chapter 2, that this evil act was completely God's plan. It was his, his definite plan and foreknowledge that led to this crucifixion. Yeah, and, and it's, just, it's just right there, right? It, it, it's God's plan. It's his foreknowledge. But also, it says there, you know, you crucified him. Uh, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So lawless, ungodly people crucified Christ. But at the same time, it was God's plan. And, uh, and God was accomplishing his good plan through that. Uh, you know, um, does the one in Acts 4 kind of fit there as well? Yeah, in Acts 4, um, I would start in verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay, so again, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Now, Still Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel who handed them over to those wicked rulers, they're responsible for their sin, but God's plan was to save people through this. Now, you know, you asked it, was this, was this God's plan or, or was it, um, God's response? Yeah. God's response. And, and I think we know, like, obviously God planned to save sinners through this thing. Uh, in fact, I like going to 2 Timothy 1.9, which talks about how God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. So the grace of God and his purpose was given to us in Christ, in connection with Christ, even before the ages began. So this was God's plan before the foundation of the world. So it's, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like God, um, you know, in, in, in Acts chapter two there, it talks about God's foreknowledge. Hmm. Well, we'll talk about foreknowledge, but it's not like God looked down through the corridors of time and saw that, oh, by the way, way down in time later on, I'm going to have sent my son and then he's going to come to this earth and die and um, be crucified, and that's going to accomplish salvation, as though that that wasn't, the reason that all that happens is because God planned it before the foundation of the world. And it, it existed in the mind of God. Yeah. We, ha- we serve a God that is um, omnipotent, omnipresent, he's all-powerful, he, he's everywhere, but he's also omniscient, he's all-knowing. Now, and this maybe ties into the attributes of God a bit, can, can God learn new information? No, because if, if there's information that he has yet to learn, then he's not now already all-knowing and perfect. Mm-hmm. And he's been this way for all of eternity. So within the mind of God, all things have existed in that sense. 
where he has always known this plan, this what would happen in all of creation, because he's not following along, moving the chess pieces along the board, trying to win against the devil or figure out what we're doing so that he can maybe respond or be proactive in that way. He has known all things for all eternity past. Therefore, his foreknowledge, in a sense, is determinative in what comes to pass because it has already existed in the mind of God. Mm -hmm. And likewise, with with this, the plan of salvation and how it was accomplished through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as we noted earlier, maybe the greatest evil ever conducted at the hands of man. It wasn't just God reacting, thinking, well, this is happening anyway, so I might as well do something good with it and, and make a way of salvation. Yeah. No, the men acted according to their will, but ultimately within the, according to the definite plans yeah. and predetermination of God. Yeah. And that's what the Bible tells us. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23. In Acts chapter 4, we read that, as well as uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9 that was read here. So if we have established there that this greatest evil, this greatest sin conducted by the hands of man was ultimately God's plan and and his determination that, that brought it about, then surely we have to step back at a lot of these other emotional appeals like we see in this track and recognize that God can use all things, including what we would consider great deeds of evil, and have predetermined them to ultimately bring glory to his name. And as he says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All these things, in a, in a sense, are still honoring him, bringing glory to him, and working good in the lives of those in whom he's, he's uh, working at that time. Yeah, and they can all work together for good because God's in control of them all. Now. Someone's going to say, and I've, you know, I've seen this before, someone's going to say, well, you know, God worked in a special way through Jesus Christ and the crucifixion, and he doesn't do that all the time. He, you know, he, like, in that one instance, he overrid um, the, um, the choices of men. But if, if you just think that through down, down the chain, like, all the things that had to happen to lead up to that, like the, yeah. the nation of Rome rising to power and just all of the things, all of the, the people that, that had to have children that led in all the way to Christ and stuff. You, you just can't, you can't get there without God's sovereignty. You know, well, in fact, you think like if, if, if men are so free, as some people want to say, then you could almost see God sending his son and he lives and nobody crucifies him because they, they made some good choices. And so then like, you know, he dies natural causes and has to come back again or something like it, you know, like God could not accomplish his plan if he wasn't sovereign in this way. So I think we need to get into the, into some of, I, some I, of this. Yeah. yeah, I would just like to point to uh, Genesis chapter 50. Like you say, if this is one instance where God overruled the will of man, well, that means God is able to, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, this was specific to salvation. This was specific to the crucifixion of Christ. But I think of Joseph and his brothers. In, in chap- Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. His brothers meant evil against him. God meant the same act for good. This was, again, the intention of God that brought about this evil act. They, they sold their younger brother into slavery. They wanted to murder him. They had nothing but wicked desires against him. So it was their own wills and desires that was against Joseph. Yeah. But ultimately, they were acting according to the predetermined plan of God. And, and the only point I want to make with that is, if we acknowledge that God can and does direct men's wills and, and have these things and, and overrides man's quote-unquote free will at times, that also creates an issue for the people who, including uh, the pastor who, who wrote this track in, in a sermon where he, he teaches God is not in control. Well, if God is not in control, and we just showed you that the scripture teaches he is in control, and there's many more verses that we'll, we'll discuss regarding God's sovereignty as we go. But keep that in mind, if God is not in control, and he cannot control man, then we have big issues with those passages that we just read. Mm -hmm. Because those passages tell us God can control man, and even intend their evil works for his ultimate good. Yeah. He planned exactly what those evil men would do. And that's what we have to understand getting into this. That yes, man is still fully accountable for his sin, for his wicked desires, for, for what he does. In fact, uh, the Apostle John tells us that our will is to do the desires of our father, the devil. So I think that's John 8, 44. Sound, I would sound have said 40. Right? Oh, yeah. Maybe, maybe, yeah, 44 and then 46 is he, uh, your father's the devil or whatever. Or, yeah. Or so, your slaves of sin. So we're not yeah. denying that man has a will. Mm -hmm. As an unbeliever, as an unsaved person, our will is to do the desires of our father, the devil. Again, John 8, 44. That's a pretty harsh statement. It's not our will that saves us. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 8 says that in the flesh, and I'm paraphrasing here right now, but in the flesh, man cannot, it is impossible to please God. Now, some may say that as sinners, we can please God, and that's what we have to do to earn God's favor, his grace. We must please him in some way. That's works-based salvation. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 verse 8 says, man cannot please God. So we have to remember those things as we go into these, this view of God's sovereignty and why it's so important that we must understand his working in all these things. It's because in and of ourselves, we can do nothing to please him. And any view that does, destroys the gospel right so let's get into the some of some definition and and we're really we're talking about god's sovereignty but i don't know if we would call it a subset of that is is what we call the decree of god or sometimes they they'll put it in the plural the decrees of god uh as though you know there's more than one you know actually there there is only one decree god is god in one simple act theologians would say has decided everything that will happen but we just can't possibly conceive of it as one thing and so we think about there's a decree about joseph's brothers and there's a decree about joseph and potiphar and potiphar's right. wife and you know all of all of those things um but really in god it was just like one simple here's my plan and it just in in an instant he came up with everything that he would ever do to glorify himself and and, and again if 
all knowledge exists in his mind, it can be done through a single decree. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question seven, uh, asks, what are the decrees of God? And the answer that they give, and this is like a summary of scripture on this whole thing, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory, he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So we're going to kind of dig into that. Again, the, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith that kind of goes along with that says this, quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So that almost needs to get broken down a little bit for us. But from all eternity, like in the past, before the creation of the world, God in his wise and holy counsel, in, in, by his will, he ordained everything that comes to pass, everything that ever will happen in the world. But the way that he does this, according to the Westminster divines, the way that he does this is that he is not the author of sin. So even though he counsels the, the sinful things that are going to come to pass, even though he plans those things, he does it in such a way that he doesn't make those people sin. He's not the author. Sin does not come from him. Nor, they say, is violence offered to the will of the creatures. So God doesn't coerce us into sin. He doesn't make us do things that we don't want to do. Somehow, God plans what's going to happen, everything, and yet he does so in a way that, that we still make free choices. And that's what they mean by the, the liberty or contingency of second causes. You know, one thing causes another thing, and if that thing happens, then something else is going to happen. Well, that's not overridden by God's plan either. It actually establishes all of those things so that this leads to that, that leads to that, that ultimately leads to everything that God plans to happen to happen. So I think with that then, I think we can jump into right into the scripture. So let's, let's look at this then. And, and I think a, a nice way to kind of start this is, you know, we're talking about the decree of God, but scripture uses so many different ways to describe this. Talks about God's will and his counsel. And let's just go through the scriptures that theologians have summarized to get us that Westminster uh, shorter catechism that, or the Westminster statement of faith, confession of faith on on God's decree. So let's go through these scriptures and, and why don't you go ahead, Lauren, and start with Psalm 2, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there we go. There's um, the decree of the Lord. And uh, at some point, there's, you know, the, this is speaking about Christ and there's a decree about um, Christ the Son. And I think that's all we want to draw from, from that one. So let's go to um, Psalm 148. Psalm 148, verses 4 to 6. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. 
he gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Okay, so God gave a decree to establish all of the heavens and, uh, and that decree will not pass away. So I've got Isaiah 5 and uh, one in Isaiah 46 here as well. Uh, but Isaiah 5.19 says, Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let, him, let it come that we may know it. And so there's the, the word counsel. Now the New American Standard Bible translates that the purpose. But there's the counsel or the purpose of the Holy One of Israel. And then Isaiah 46 verse 10. Well, even let me start in verse 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. So there's nobody like God, he says. No one's like me. From the very beginning, I declare the end. From before the foundation of the world, I, I tell you what's going to happen at the end of the world. And I say in, the, in that time, my counsel, my purpose, the, the NASB translates that, my good pleasure, I'm going to accomplish, note that word there, all. I will accomplish all my purpose. So God has a counsel, God has a purpose, and he says he's going to accomplish all of it. And also on God's purpose, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, there's a calling according to his purpose. Okay, yeah, you want to do Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, verse 9, and verse 11. We'll read those three verses. Verse 5, he predestined, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So just, you know, just, you got to get that verse. Like, don't miss that. He works. He is the one who works all things according to the, is it, did it say counsel or purpose in that? Here it says the purpose or the counsel of his will. And the, the New American translates it as the counsel the of counsel. his will as well. Yeah. So, so God works all things. Now, if we go into the context of that, it's talking about predestining people to salvation. Like that whole passage from Isaiah 1, 3, or Isaiah. Ephesians 1.3 all the way to verse 14, that whole passage is talking about salvation and all the blessings of salvation that we have in Christ. And, and God is the one there who works all things in that context of salvation according to the, the counsel purpose of his will. Uh, I like Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 talks about so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us so God wants to kind of convince everyone about his plan 
and um, that it's an unchangeable purpose that he has. And so he also not only revealed this purpose, but he also uh, made an oath and he can't lie. So there's this unchangeable purpose that he has in the context. God wants us to have this encouragement about our eternal security, if we want to say it that way. And so he's got this unchangeable purpose plus an oath and he can't lie. Therefore, it's going to be accomplished. Mm-hmm. So that, these are some of the terms that talk about God's decree. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And again, we see his power over nations and people to do with their plans, to, to bring them to nothing, to frustrate their plans and their counsel. But in verse 11, Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Great. Well, uh, Psalm 115 and verse 3 is really key in this as well. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then there's a similar verse in Isaiah 35, 6. This is from the NASB, but whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deeps. Now, if you think about that one, there's nowhere else besides that, right? In, in the earth, in the sea, in the depths, uh, in heaven, whatever the Lord pleases, whatever is according to the good pleasure of his will, he does. And so I, I, I kind of, I, I took and summarized all of these things. And what we, what we see then is this decree that God has and it's called a decree or the decree. It's called my purpose. It's called his purpose, his own purpose, your hand, your purpose, your good pleasure. Uh, God calls it my good pleasure, whatever the Lord pleases, the intention of his will, the mystery of his will, the counsel of his will, the counsel of the Lord, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, your hand and your purpose. All of this is, is kind of a scriptural summary of God's decree. God has a plan and it's happening in time and we see it as it's accomplished uh, from day to day. There too, that's some very powerful language that the scripture itself gives us regarding this decree, right? God's purpose, his purpose, that whole list that you just went through. It's a very, it's very hard to argue against what this means. Now, there may be some room for, for nuanced views within Christendom regarding what, how God draws us out and, and, and works it out, but to deny his sovereignty in all these things, that, that's, a, that's a dangerous position to take because you're opposing, as we saw here, so much of what scripture says in regards to God's purpose in all things, the counsel of his will, his predetermined plan, his foreknowledge, his hand, his purpose, etc. Yeah, that's great. You know, uh, just kind of thinking about that, um, I've, I've got this uh, book by Jim Scott Oreck called Mere Calvinism, and he explains some of these things. And he says this, he says, quote, nearly every professing Christian who bases his faith on the Bible will acknowledge that God may do as he pleases, but the Bible asserts that God does do as he pleases. And then he quotes uh, Daniel 4.34 which I think is helpful as well, 434 and 35, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will 
among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So, so get that, right? God does what he wants to do. He does his will in heaven and on earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God's dominion, God's kingship, his kingdom is from generation to generation and the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. In other words, he's not concerned about what they're going to do or what they're going to think. They're not going to thwart his plan. He does what he wants to do. And, and this is in the context here, Daniel 4. This is Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony after uh, in pride he says, I'm going you know, I'm, I'm to expand my kingdom like the heavens or whatever. And then God makes him go nuts, eat the grass like a, an ox or whatever. And then God restores to him that kingdom. Like, you know, usually you don't give people who went nuts and ate um, grass like an ox for seven years a kingdom back. But God is able to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar in just amazement and a new understanding of who the Lord is says, wow, God is sovereign and he does whatever he wants. And that's what scripture teaches. That's what all those verses that we just read teach. And as it says there, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. There is no being, no part of this creation that Daniel is is saying here isn't under God's sovereign control and that God doesn't have can, can't work according to his purpose amongst humanity, amongst men, among the hosts of heaven, the angels, all spiritual beings, everything is subject to God's sovereign control. Yeah. And you know, that reminds me, as you say that theologians, when, when we talk about God, they talk about him as the supremely happy being. And why is he the supremely happy being? Because he always gets his will. <laughs> right? That nobody ever thwarts his will. Nobody ever does something that he doesn't allow or, or doesn't, isn't pleased to have done in his world. And to consider that, you know, if we were to always get our will, we'd run into a lot of misery and trouble because we live in a fallen world. We have fallen minds. We live in, in sin, cursed flesh and bodies. God doesn't. Mm-hmm. He has a perfect desire, perfect love, perfect holiness. So, his will is always perfect, even when it's carried out by sinful men. Yeah. His ultimate will, his decretive will is still perfect. Yeah, the wise and the holy counsel of his will. Uh, Job 42 two says, uh, Job confesses here, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours <laughs> can be thwarted. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God's decree then is like a, a blueprint uh, for everything that's going to come to pass, whatsoever's going to come to pass. Um, this blueprint isn't made on the fly. He's not responding to what happens. It, he made this before the foundation of the world. And, and what we're going to do now is we're going to divide this decree into, um, well, for today, I think we're going to try to do four things. And we're just, let's just go back and look at these scriptures. And see what we can see about God's decree. And the first thing that we're going to see is that God's decree is an eternal decree. It happened, like we've already said, before the creation of time. And, and therefore, it's said to be eternal. So it happened 
before creation, before the, the planet, before time in eternity past. Psalm 139.16 reads, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Okay, before there was a day, um, those were already planned. So I've got Ephesians 3, verses 9 to 11 here, says this, uh, To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So this plan of the mystery that's hidden for ages in God that Paul's talking about is this mystery of the, of the church. And uh, it was... It was hidden in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the church and and salvation in Christ is part of God's eternal purpose, which he had hidden in the past. He didn't reveal it, but now he has revealed it. And so his eternal purpose is coming to fruition. But it's an eternal decree that God has made. We read this verse earlier, 2 Timothy 1.9, but I think it's helpful to look at it again in, in light of the eternal degree, decree. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Okay, yeah, before the ages began. And then Ephesians 1.4, we already kind of talked about that context. We read 9, we read 11. Um, but verse 4, uh, even as he chose us in him, so God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, God chose us for salvation, Lauren, before we were mm-hmm. even born. Before you were born, before the world even was, he God somehow knew there was going to be a Lauren Dick and a Mike Hovland. He knew that our parents would conceive and bear us and that we would live and that we would be saved. And and he chose us in that way even before we were born. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, which is what the next verse says. Really amazing. Uh, MacArthur and Mayhew, in uh, in their systematic theology, biblical doctrine, they say, kind of going through some of these verses, they say, thus all of God's providential actions in time conform to a fixed purpose that precedes time. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what scripture shows us, that everything that happens, everything that God does, he has planned before time began. So that's the first thing we see about God's decree. The next one um, that we want to see is, is that this is an unconditional decree. And we can see this from scripture, but you can also see this logically. If nothing existed when God made his decree, then nothing external to God was there to influence his decisions. So there was nothing, then he made things, and then things happened to those things, but all of it was planned before. So he's he's not basing it on what I do or what you do or what, you know, how this person's going to respond. His plan includes all of those contingencies, but it's not because of those things. It's because of the good pleasure of his will. Is it a fair logical uh, conclusion then to say that 
you know, you mentioned earlier, God looking forward into time and kind of seeing what man would do and then kind of determining based on that, you know, that view of foreknowledge, which we would also say is more aligned with the more heretical view of, of open theism, which creates a God that is learning, always gaining more knowledge, which then means how can we trust anything he said in the past until all things have come to pass to see if he was right. Mm-hmm. But the logical conclusion then of that, because nothing existed when God made his decree, then nothing external to God can influence his decisions. But if God just simply knows who will one day receive him and then acts accordingly, that, that kind of makes me and you and, and, and all humanity sovereign over God, even in our pre-existent state. So before we even exist, we would then be influencing God in order for him to be able to work in any manner because he's making his decisions based on something that I'll decide and yet I'm not even, I don't even exist yet. Yeah. And so that creates a lot of issues with with our doctrine of God and and who he is as attributes, right? Yeah. Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, if you were going to do something that he didn't want to do, he could have just not had you come to existence, exactly. right? Um, and, and so, um, you know, I, I don't know if I can do this, but Jonathan Edwards talks about this, and I'm going to try to read this, and, and I hope you can kind of follow this, but um, I think Jonathan Edwards did a great job of this, but I just don't know if I'm going to be able to get it for you in a way that's going to be helpful. But this is from his book, I guess we'd say, his book called the, Concerning the Divine Decree. And here's what he says. But if you say that the ground or reason of their futurition, now, so he's talking about futurition, like the, the, why are things future? So if you say that the ground or the reason of their futurition is in the things themselves, then things are future prior to any decree. Or their futurition is antecedent in nature of any decree of God. And then, to what purpose is any decree of God? For according to this supposition, God's decreeing does not make anything future or not future because it was future prior to his decree. His decreeing or appointing that anything shall be or shall not be does not alter the case. It is not about to be or about not to be anything the more for God's decreeing it. According to this supposition, God has no freedom or choice in decreeing or appointing anything. It is not as it is not at his choice what shall be future and what not, no, not in one thing. So if it's just really what you just said, Lauren. If if we're thinking about something that's future, well, why is it future? Is it future because of the thing itself, because of what's going to happen in the future, or is it future because God decreed it? And if you say it's future because of the thing itself, then God has no ability to do anything at all with that thing. It's going to happen whether God wants it to happen or not, and it doesn't matter what God decrees then, that thing has now become sovereign over God. Mm-hmm. Because um, it, it exists outside then of God's knowledge and, and decree. And outside of his will. Yeah. And if God is the one that then subjects to that, then like you say, it has become sovereign over him. Yeah. 
So then he goes on, Edward goes on, for the futurition of things is by this supposition antecedent in nature to his choice. So things are future before God chose them to be future. Can you just define antecedent yeah. for us, Mike? Before. It's, it's used several times and, <laughs> yeah. and I think we understand what is meant by that. It's a, it's a hermeneutical term as well, but maybe for those that don't know what the term means. Yeah, so it just means something comes before. Something is, is uh, before it, the it's, thing. It's the logical or chronologically. It, it, it comes before logically or chronologically, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and a supposition is just kind of like a like a proposition, like a statement, a, um, a statement of fact. So, so let's, we're thinking about the future of things and we're saying their future outside of God. Well, if that's the case, then that things are future kind of before God makes a choice so that his choosing or refusing does not alter the case. The things in themselves are future and his decreeing cannot make them not future for they cannot be future and not future at the same time. Neither can it make them future because they are future already. So that they who thus plead for man's liberty advance principles which destroy the freedom of God himself. It is allowed that things are future before they come to pass because God foreknows them. Either things are future antecedently to God's decree and independently of it, or they are not. If they are not future antecedently to and independently of God's decree, then they are made so by his decree. There is no medium. So what he's saying is things are either future of themselves or they're future because God decreed them. If they're future of themselves, then God has no, then God's decree is, is, is really a fiction. It's, mm-hmm. He's saying, it's like God saying, I planned that when it's actually that he just knew that that was going to happen and he, he couldn't have done anything about it. It kind of ties in with that old saying, hindsight is twenty twenty. We can always look back at something that already happened and say, yeah, I knew that would happen. Yeah. In fact, I meant it to be yeah. exactly like in that, fact, right? I decreed it because I knew it would happen. It'd be kind of like running up, if I'd try to run up and do a fancy layup in basketball or something, I'd probably end up wiping out and laying on this concrete floor and looking up and seeing that everybody's standing there wa- looking at me, laughing. Yeah, I meant that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reacting to something that already happened, which then gives me no control, gives me no power, no authority at all. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know if that's going to be helpful for the listeners. That's, that's a little bit uh, difficult to listen to. But, um, you know, just, you, you know, that's what, that, I think that's what ends up happening. If, if we want to make a case that, that man is utterly free and he's making choices and, and God really has no say in it, then, then those choices of men are out, totally outside of God's control and there's nothing that he could do to stop those things. I think it might be a, a good idea to just kind of talk, just mention free will, as you mentioned, if man is utterly free, not to be confused with the fact that, that we do believe that man is responsible and that man has a will, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We would just say, rather than maybe use the term an absolute free will, which I know even Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God, he uses that term open, openly. Mm-hmm. And, and we have no problem with that, again, defining our terms, but that we would say that God, that man's will is free within the bounds of our nature. So man has a will, yes, 
but it is only free within the bounds of our nature. I cannot flap my arms and fly because it is outside of the nature of man to be able to do so. Mm -hmm. I need something external to come in to allow me to fly, right? We would call it in the law of aerodynamics, you know, using an airplane, a helicopter, something like that. Now, that may not be the best example, but the idea is then that we as sinners, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. No man seeks after God. No man does good. This is the bounds of our nature. Our will, as we said earlier in John 8, 44, is to do the desires of our father, the devil. We are enslaved by the devil, captured to do his will. I believe that's Hebrews 6. Speaks, speaks on that. So just as you use that term, you know, that man is utterly free, we, we do believe we have a will. Mm-hmm. But we have to be realistic about that and recognize that our will is quite limited. And we might get into that more as the series goes on and help us to understand that. But just, just an example that I like to use as well, you know, to think of a food that you absolutely despise, something that just disgusts you. Now, using only your free will, choose to love it. We can't even do that. So how can we, dead in our trespasses and sins, enemies of God, haters of righteousness, we, we do not seek God, our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. You see, it's not this will that saves us, as, as John chapter 1 uh, verses 12 and 13 very clearly says it's the will of God that does it. This is the exact will we need saving from. That will, and then once God gives us a new nature, we are a new creation, then our will also transforms with that to where we desire the things of God, where our will now, where we can please God as his children. You know, before, as we saw earlier in the flesh, we cannot please God. Once he has transformed us, regenerated us, made us a new creation, now we can freely with our will also serve him and obey him but ultimately even that is part of his control and and divine plan yeah and so so god has a plan and let's say let's say i have a choice between a and b and we don't even have to get into like my nature or my inclination god planned that i was going to choose a or b and he planned that i was going to choose a now i freely choose a because that's what my choice, I, you know, I could have chose A, let's say I could have even equally chose B. God knew from before the foundation of the world that I would choose A and he planned that choice and he planned the next choice that would come because I chose A, now I have to choose between C and D. Well, he knew I would choose D and, and he planned that. He didn't make me choose D. Mm-hmm. He didn't coerce me to choose D, but he, but, but he knew I would choose that and, and so on with all the millions of choices that happen in the world that, that we would say people freely choose, yeah. but God has planned that as well. And there is a sense in which they do really choose that. They do. According to the plan and foreknowledge it's of God. Exa- yeah, but it's yeah. also, there's no sense in which anyone chooses something that God didn't plan. I think it's Matt Slick from uh, Karm that uses the example it was on a youtube uh evangelism thing that he was doing and it's it's been quite a few years since i watched this but i thought it was a good example where he tries to explain that you know say you have a starving child and and you place a rock in front of that child or you place a bowl of ice cream in in front of that child or you place both of them in front of this child this starving child will choose that bowl of ice cream to eat every time Mm mm-hmm So can you say that that child freely chose that bowl of ice cream? Yes. But we all know you place a rock and a bowl of ice cream in front of a starving child, 
that you have determined that that child will eat that ice cream. Yeah. Right. It's not a perfect example. I understand that. And maybe he, he even used some other wording. Like I said, it's been quite a few years since I listened to that, but it, but it is an idea. It gives us a sense in which even there as a human being, we can kind of determine something and yet that child made its own decision. Yeah. And, right. and then when you think about the infinite knowledge of God of every person's heart and upbringing and he just, yeah. he knows. And so he can foreordain what we will freely choose. And, uh, and that's even, just the amazing power of God. And he even controls the inclinations of our minds and heart as trusting God very clearly shows. You know, yeah. he, he controls the minds and inclinations of, of kings, of nations, of, of the Egyptians when the Israelites are to be let free. There's, there's a lot of those passages that we can look at throughout the series and should yeah. be really, really helpful. In. Yeah. But yeah, at no point is somebody making a decision outside of God's will and because if that happened, like Edwards is arguing here, then God's will would utterly collapse and his plan would be thwarted. And it, it's mm. possible that he sent Christ into the world and um, nobody crucifies him. Right. Be, or like you said, like he, because if, if there's things that he doesn't know and plan, then, then he can't know what is going to happen in the future because it, it's not sure. But yeah. according to scripture, it, it is sure. And it's not based on anything. So, um, you know, with that, again, to think about this unconditional decree, again, Isaiah 46, 10, God says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Um, It's his purpose, his good pleasure. He does according to his will in the host of heaven uh, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And so God's decree is an unconditional decree. It's not based on what's going to happen or what does happen. Third thing we, we say about God's decree is that it's an immutable decree. And that means it's, it's unchangeable. An unchangeable decree. Uh, made before the foundation of the world. It's, it's going to be carried out in time. And uh, nothing can thwart, frustrate, or change God's plan. And we, we've kind of already talked about that just because it's unconditional. It's also unchangeable. Everything that's going to happen in the world, God decided according to his infinite knowledge, his infinite wisdom, his infinite power. Nobody's doing anything that falls outside of that. And uh, with that, do you have Isaiah 46 for us? Yes. Verse, starting verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Okay, I have purposed, I will do it. Um, he's going to bring it to pass. So God has, has kind of, in this situation, he's revealed things from the beginning. He's revealed things that are going to happen in, in ancient times, or that are going to happen, I should say, in future times. And he's going to make sure that those things happen. He himself is going to do it. It's not going to be changed. What, what else do you got there, Lauren? Isaiah fourteen twenty seven, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? 
Right. And then again, with that Job 42 two, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or Nebuchadnezzar again in Daniel 4.35, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? You got Psalm 33.11 for us, Lauren, 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Okay, all generations. So, and, and you know, it stands forever. So, he, it was planned before. It's going to come to completion. And that, that's a great encouragement for us to know that everything that God planned, he is going to accomplish and make sure it happens. Now, the next thing that we talk about it with God's decree is that it's an exhaustive decree. And that, 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 what I mean by that is it, it covers every single event. Like the Westminster Divine said, uh, whatsoever comes to pass. I like that, whatsoever. And, and we have a few scriptures on that, and then I think we'll wrap this up. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And Ephesians 1, 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And, and what we're trying to get at there is all things, right? It's, it's all things. Um, there's not any things that fall outside of all things. That includes salvation. That includes the evil acts of men. That includes everything that happens in the world. Uh, Job 37, 12 says, and, and he's speaking about clouds and, and lightning and kind of the, the weather patterns. And he says, they turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Uh, Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. So God is in control of the weather. And I think that's a, a good thing for us to remember. He commands it on the whole inhabited earth. God is in control of the weather. Again, we, as we referenced earlier in that track, to you know, just kind of the emotional appeal to the idea that God is in control of what we would see as bad or ill or evil. And in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37 and 38, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Yeah. Good and bad, the, the Hebrew word there is ra, uh, evil. So good and evil comes from his hand. And, and the writers of scripture aren't afraid to attribute evil to God, even in an active sense. You know, uh, and, and he himself, you know, just, just to focus on that verse that we, that we just read, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? You know, just this is God's word. This isn't... Pastor Mike Hovland and, and Lauren Dick talking about what our opinion is because, you know, we're Calvinists or something like that. Mm-hmm. This is God's word making this declaration. We have to be very careful before we make it sound like, well, then we're creating a monster God or something like that if we say that. No, this is God's word that's saying that. We're just believing it. Yeah. Now right. he's holy, right? Yeah. Don't, don't miss that. But from his mouth, is it not? It's, and that's a rhetorical question. And, and again, go back to our, our episode on the will of God, where we discuss how God is still never responsible for sin. 
it, it's all there, but it does not change the fact that he himself, through his word, Holy Spirit-inspired writers, to, to pen words like this, it is from God's mouth that both good and bad come. Okay, Job twenty-three thirteen. but he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Or in the NASB that says, many such decrees are with him. And so whatever God had appointed for Job, all of that came to pass, and Job recognized that. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Let's go to Romans 11. And maybe we can kind of wrap it up. I'm kind of, you know, I, like I, like usual, I don't have a sense of how long we've been here, but I'm guessing it's already a bit of a long episode, which uh, if you've listened to any of our episodes, you know that's just kind of how we do things around here. Uh, but Romans 11, you know, we could go even back further. Let's just even, even if we just look at 1136, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. And there's, there's kind of a, there's at least three statements there if you bring it, kind of break it down. From him, so we're talking about all things. So this is, we're talking about God's decree. It's an exhaustive decree. It covers all things. And what Paul says here is that all things come from him. So God is, is the source of all things. God is the ultimate cause of all things. All things come through him, like, like he is the means by which they happen, and all things are, are to him or are unto him, and the idea there is that, that they're, they're, they're for him. They are for his glory and honor, and, and that's how Paul ends, to him be the glory forever. But I, I think that, that verse there in, in and of itself really covers all of what we're looking at here. Everything that happens in this world comes from God, comes through him. He's the one who's like actively involved in making sure that it happens. And it's ultimately for him because everything that happens in this world, even the sinful and evil things, when they are made right in the end, in the judgment of God, all of that is going to bring glory to him. And, uh, and that's what Paul is recognizing there at the end of Romans 11, after he just described all of salvation, all of God's election, all of his plans for Israel right to the future, he says, wow, the wisdom and the, the, and the riches of God's knowledge, to him be who, the glory. For who yeah. has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, or from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. Yeah. What an acknowledgement, right? Yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of just like scratching the surface on what scripture says about God's decree. And, and what we see is a God who is absolutely sovereign over everything, everything that happens in our lives. And, and kind of going back to Jerry Bridges then, just maybe briefly, you know, Bridges makes the argument that, and I, I, even just looking at this, I'm going, oh, there's so much more that we could say. But, but Bridges makes this argument that God is even over the malevolent acts, the, the evil acts of other people. They're under his sovereign control. They're not, they're not some mistake that God made when somebody was rude to you or, or some evil thing happens in the world. God is over that. And 
those evil actions can't thwart God's purpose for our lives. And we can take great comfort in knowing that he's sovereign in that way. He's sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over the government. Uh, He tells us in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us to give thanks in all circumstances. And Bridges makes the point there that how can we give thanks for all circumstances if God's not the one who's working them out for our good, if God's not sovereign over those things. We're giving thanks to him because we recognize those Mm. things are from him. And so everything that's happening in our lives works together for our good. And and in taking comfort in that, we can be thankful for even the bad things that happen in our lives. And then Bridges says, um, just kind of summarizing God's sovereignty, looking at, at really all of these verses that we just looked at. He says, no plan of God's can be thwarted. When he acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and works out every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will. And then he says, but God is not only sovereign, he is perfect in love and infinite in wisdom. And uh, as we see what, what God does with his decree, kind of in the end, as we look at what God has accomplished, we're going to say, wow, not only was God in control of those things, but that was the best plan. That was a sovereign, wise, loving, good plan. And we're going to spend eternity marveling at the way that God accomplished his plan, even through the, the wicked actions of, of men and bad things in the world. And that way he truly does receive all the glory and honor for all that he has accomplished. Yeah. It has nothing to do with us. Yeah, that's great. With that, we will wrap up this episode, but before we do go, uh, we've referenced again Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, a great resource for life in general. If, if you're hurting, it just helps kind of walking through, is helping to see that in God's sovereignty, he is trustworthy, and because of his sovereignty, remember, if God is not sovereign over one area of your life, that is an area you cannot trust him. So to help understand that and just to, to, to submit to that belief and that doctrine of scripture, God's sovereignty as well. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the, the track was addressing the how Calvin misrepresents the gospel. Let me see exactly what the title was here again. Calvinism's misrepresentation of God. So we'll be addressing those things by dealing with the doctrines of grace moving forward. And again, a great resource for that, a book that we went through in our men's ministry called Mere Calvinism by Jim Scott Oreck. And, and what Oreck does is, is he, he looks at these doctrines of grace and just really works through them from a biblical, a scriptural perspective, as well as a logical perspective, and really does a great job helping to understand that. Now, you may still come out of that reading that and not agree with all of his conclusions. And there are good godly people who, who won't. But it helps to understand you know, if the concern is misrepresentation, then we should be sure to represent um, these perspectives correctly. And if you don't want to purchase books, a great resource is the website monergism.com, M-O-N-E-R-G-I-S-M, monergism.com. And it's a great resource. Use their search engine. There's literally thousands of resources on there from PDFs to website links 
books, free books. I think you can uh, search free book library and they have a free book library of about 800 volumes already that you can just download PDF versions of. Wonderful resources and at least it'll help you understand. And ultimately, again, speaking of the Calvinistic view, the doctrines of grace as we call it, on that website, you can search the doctrines of grace, a categorized scripture list, and you'll get pages of that. And you can get the PDF version of that as well, which is a 40 one page document and all it is is categorized scripture list it's not uh man's explanation or anything like that it's just categorized through the doctrines of grace and the different aspects and he just kind of indexes them and just lists scripture after scripture after scripture and funny story on that is when uh, a few years back a lot of the accusations that went around were you know calvinism it's just a man made doctrine it's not based on scripture it's a man made doctrine man made doctrine and we provided this list to uh, to someone who kept making that accusation, and their response came back, which was, I'm not going to read that. That's way too much. And again, these are all scripture verses. The following day, their accusations again were, there's no scripture to support it. Well, you, you, you can't say there's too much scripture. I'm not going to read all that, and then come back the next day and say there's no scripture. So... Our challenge would simply be study the Word of God, look at these lists, look at the resources that are out there, and and simply submit to what the Word of God says on these things. And, and we do believe that that is how you come to this these conclusions, um, ultimately, is through submission to the Word of God. All that said, we'll wrap up here for, for this episode. Again, you can listen to our episodes on abideattheword.com. You can go to the... Uh, or abide in the word.wordpress.com. You can go to the podcast link on there, which will take you to the Striving for Eternity website where we are part of the Christian Podcast Community.org. Again, the Christian Podcast Community.org. You can click on there, check out many great podcasts that are on there and the content that they have to share. With that, thanks again for listening and God bless.